Welcome back to Bootability, a weekly interview series about the amazing ability we all have to change our lives and the world if we're brave enough to tap into it. I'm your host, Jihee Jolly. Today we're talking about unlocking our own agency when it comes to peacebuilding efforts and protecting our planet. Our guest is Emma Pike, who is an activist in the field of nuclear abolition, an issue that is key in SGI Nitrian Buddhism because such weapons would destroy human life and at scale make our planet uninhabitable for most life forms. In other words, they represent the exact opposite of what Buddhism strives to protect the dignity of all life. Emma will get into the issues, and she also shares her own inspiring journey of unlocking the courage to pursue work in this field. It all began from her practice of chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, and the lessons she shares are applicable to any fight you might be currently engaged in, whether it's personal or on an issue that might feel too big to change. I'll let Emma share the rest. My name is Emma, and I'm 29 years old. I am currently calling from Basel, Switzerland, where I live for half the time, and the other half I spend in Boston, Massachusetts. And currently, I work in the field of nuclear abolition, so I would say I am an activist, above all. Well, not above all, but among other things. Yes, I'm excited because I know we're going to dig into that specifically for today's episode. But I always like to start with just context on how and why people started practicing Buddhism so we know a little bit more about who you are and why you chant. So if you don't mind briefly sharing first, how did you encounter SGI Nichiren Buddhism? And then when and why did you start chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo? Yeah, I encountered SGI Buddhism because when I was born, my mother was a member and she had been practicing for a long time. Her mother actually was a member as well. And so my mom is Japanese and my dad is from the U.S. And so until I was about nine years old, I lived in Japan. And, you know, during that time, I went along with my mom to a lot of SGI meetings. Well, in Japan, it was a Sokarakai, but a lot of meetings either at bigger you know, community centers, culture centers, or the smaller sort of discussion meetings that we have. So in the SGI, sort of the main type of meeting that we have, right, are these more intimate discussion meetings that are based in our geographic communities, typically, and they often are held at people's homes. And so I have so many wonderful memories of those meetings. I really, really loved going to them and, you know, sort of grew up surrounded by that community. But I don't think I ever really chanted from myself until about, let's see, I was in junior year of high school. So the third year of high school. And I experienced this just like, dramatic change in myself that I had never experienced before. So growing up, I was very sort of happy-go-lucky. I think people would have described me as like a really bubbly kid, really optimistic was definitely a word I would have also really used to describe myself always. And I was just generally happy. Of course, there were things that I worried about and I had sort of an anxious side, but in my fourth year, or no, my third year of high school, I suddenly was just plunged into like inner turmoil. I didn't really know why, but I remember feeling so just dark and so heavy and more than anything, really, really hopeless. I really just felt like so stuck and I couldn't understand why, you know, I I would be crying all the time and I didn't understand why. I felt frustrated and angry all the time, but also I didn't understand why. And then, you know, even more angry and guilty as well for feeling that way because inevitably you take it out on the people around you. And I remember at that time, actually, I 
was at, I think, a, an annual physical checkup, something like that. And my pediatrician at the time, she told me, you know, I think that you are suffering from depression. Hmm. And so that sort of period was the first time that I can remember chanting from myself hmm. because I felt like I had no other option. I didn't know what else to do. And I couldn't explain why. But I remember I continued because this tension that I had inside constantly, you know, and this sort of frustration that I had inside started to ease, you know. And, and so that was sort of my first experience of feeling like, oh, I don't know why, but something about this makes me feel better, makes me feel more like myself. And then, of course, it wasn't like I started one day and then, you know, 10 years later, here I am and I've continued every day since. But, you know, over the years, as I went off to college, I went to college in Scotland, you know, so that brought a tiny little town in a different country that brought a whole other host of challenges and just life overall. I think over the years, I accumulated, you know, one experience after another of either feeling that way or feeling hopeless in some other way and chanting, you know, and finding a way to break through that challenge. And so that cycle just continued until I found myself really, yeah, having sort of this practice as a, as a foundation for my life, you know, it just sort of happened over time, but hmm. yeah. Here I am. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing. I love how like honest and and real that is. It the the way you described it as like a an accumulation of experiences because I completely relate to that. And I think many people who start their practice, you know, you can study all of the theory and the philosophy, but realistically, it's like observing it and experiencing it work in your own life and the lives of the people around you over and over and over again is like how you you build your own conviction. So thank you for sharing <laughs> that context. So I want to ask another sort of context question, which relates to today's topic, because I, I want to speak a little bit about your work. And you mentioned already that, you know, you work on nuclear abolition and are an activist. And this is also kind of your career path, but I know it was not like a straight line necessarily. So do you mind just walking us through briefly, you know, what does this mean to, to pursue a career path that contributes to the abolition of nuclear weapons? And how did, how did this become your path or why did you decide to pursue this? Oh my gosh, such a big question. I have been reflecting on this recently because it's only a kind of recent development. And all of the things that have led me to, you know, now be working as my job in the field of nuclear abolition and all of the skills that I need and all of the sort of self-belief that I need to be here are all things that, again, over the course of my practice, I have developed just through facing whatever like challenge was in front of me at the time. And so it wasn't my goal. I didn't have this big goal of like one day when I grow up, I'm going <laughs> to work to abolish nuclear weapons. But this sort of seed, I think, was planted when I was in college. I studied international relations, which is very, at least in my experience, it was very sterile and it was very devoid of sort of the human element, which mm. is kind of, you know, should be central, but it really felt more like talking strategy in a game kind of thing. And at that time I encountered, well, I'll first say we had, you know, a week on nuclear weapons and I didn't find it that interesting. I don't remember anything from that week. I just remember that it existed. But later on in my college career, I encountered this book called Choose Hope, massive sunflower on the cover. It's very beautiful. And it's a published dialogue between Daisaku Ikeda, who is the, the third president of you know, the Sokarakai and of the SGI, and also a person who I really consider to be my mentor in life, like my, you know, example of how, how can I live like the best life 
in in the way that that is more like true to myself. But and also, of course, I'm sure many listeners will know, but he's a, a very active peace builder, prolific writer. And so the dialogue is between Daisaku Keda and a man named David Krieger, who founded something called the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. And the book, the subtitle for it is Your Role in Waging Peace in the Nuclear Age. Mm. And it approaches the problem of nuclear weapons in terms of the power of the individual person. And, you know, it really advocates for a shift that we need from thinking about global security in terms of just state security. So, you know, every country for itself, just protecting sort of their own isolated security, a shift from that to human security, right? Because we live in a world that's so inextricably linked. There is no talking about the security of one country at the expense of another, which is also actually exactly, right? The way that Buddhism views all life, right? All life is inextricably linked. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that later. But anyway, that I read that book and it, it opened my eyes to not only a lot of the realities of nuclear war and what that might mean, which most of us don't know, and I wouldn't have either until I sought it out, but it also opened my eyes to the fact that I, as an individual, had an important role to play. You know, and I'd never thought about it that way before. It had always been an issue that felt very far away from me. That was sort of the responsibility of other more powerful people. So. Anyway, I, at that time, I, I ended up writing my fourth year, you know, my like senior thesis on, on nuclear weapons and peace theory. And I was always really interested in abolition. And I always kept up with this issue over the years. And, you know, later, for example, when I went into the field of international education in graduate school, I wrote my master's thesis, again, on nuclear disarmament and curriculum or nuclear disarmament curriculum. And so it was always in the back of my mind this question of how can I do more? I want to do more, but I never knew how. I couldn't even envision how to contribute more. I didn't even realize that there were people out there, let alone many people who, you know, choose to work on this topic as their full-time job. Mm. So, and maybe, you know, the, the, you know, work itself, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about later, but I think the important thing is the, the foundation that led me to be able to be on this path now is really my journey over the course of my practice of uncovering like who I really am and uncovering my own agency, you know, because the practice of chanting is all about polishing our own lives, right? And revealing our true selves, our true nature. Because so the that that challenge, I think, which is what led me to be able to be here now was the challenge to face this lifelong struggle that I had had of living for other people, whether it was consciously or not, like really living for the people around me, always being concerned if they were okay. And I think concern for others is a really wonderful thing, of course, but not when it's based on a disrespect for your own life and disregard for your, your own life. And you know, really like minimizing yourself. Like I remember in graduate school, for example, even, even that, you know, that recently I would often keep a question I had or a comment I had to myself because I didn't want to take time away from my peers to also be able to talk or, you know, instead of contributing what I had to contribute or just frequently going through life with this feeling of not, not, not being able to really live, you know, as myself in the way that I wanted to. And I had this realization that that, I actually remember exactly where I was when I, I was chanting in a Buddhist community center in New York City, when I had this realization, like this is the opposite of Buddhism. You know, in from the Buddhist perspective, the best way that I can contribute to the happiness and well-being of other people, as well as to myself, is to just be me. And to recognize that my life, just like every other person's life, actually does have limitless potential, not in some theoretical, beautiful sounding way, but in a genuine, you know, real way, it has limitless value. 
And so in that moment, as I was chanting, I made this determination and I still <laughs> say this or like think this every day, but I, I made this determination. I'm going to shine as brightly as I can in the way that is most true to myself, mm. which was revolutionary for me. I was like, am I allowed to do this? Is that okay? Of course I am. And in fact, that's how I'll contribute, you know, to my life and to the world. And so, you know, it was a couple more years until I, I started working in the field of nuclear disarmament. But that determination to shine as brightly as I can in the way that's most true to me was really the shift, I think, that has allowed me to then be where I am today and be working in a job that just feels so true to myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. You know, I, I, I so appreciate your vulnerability in sharing the personal aspect of that because I think I actually I wrote this down as you were talking, but I think like even in choosing the issue that like speaks most to you or the area of work that inspires you, whatever it is for anybody, it takes guts to be true to yourself. Like that's sort of what you're describing. But what I wrote down is that I th thought it was the responsibility of people more powerful than me. I feel like that captures on so many levels, actually, what so many of us struggle with when it comes to like, can I make a difference in the world? Can I actually impact this issue or that issue or this policy or this culture or this like ingrained you know way of looking at other people or whatever it might be and it also like just putting it that way offers us the solution right because then how do you become a more powerful person and like what does that even mean you know like why why on social terms do the most powerful or the wealthiest people get to call all the shots you know and what does it look like to uncover your own power your own potential which is literally what the practice of buddhism is <laughs> so yeah, i exactly. i love that Wow. Wow. Even just, yeah, hearing, yeah, you sort of say it back to me is so, that's yeah. so true. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll unpack that in a, in a bit, but I'm just thinking it might be helpful for people if, if you don't mind, who completely might be new to nuclear abolition, disarmament, the issues. Could we share like a little primer on the issues and basically like why is nuclear abolition such an important movement for those who might think that like, oh, this was, you know, a Cold War thing <laughs> or, well, I mean, I think people realize given given the current wars going on that this is a really important thing again, but what facts should more people know? Like I, I'm assuming that as you were learning, you were sort of having these moments of of shock and of, you know, just reaction to understanding like what's actually happening. And then, yeah, we'll just start there. Yes. Wow. Well, yes, that is so true, especially recently. And, you know, as we speak, it feels like each day more and more, it feels more relevant. I, in my lifetime, had never seen nuclear weapons in the news. Certainly, you know, not like they have been recently, but yeah, let's go over the facts because I remember even, you know, 10 plus years ago when I first sort of started doing some digging around, the thing that shocked me the most, I think, was firstly, it wasn't so easy to find this information. And I remember thinking, this should definitely be public knowledge. It's publicly available, but it's not at all or it wasn't really in our public consciousness. And I remember the thing that shocked me the most was the number of times in history where we have come so close within minutes in many cases of nuclear war because one side or the other perceived a false alert um, and believed that it was under attack, right? Either a technical glitch or in some cases, like for example, the sunlight bouncing off of a satellite that looked like an alert that a country was under attack and, you know, they then begin the process of deploying their own weapons, right? And so that was when I realized, oh, it's not the wisdom of our leaders or the infallibility of our technology or, you know, the soundness of our military doctrine. Those are not the things that have prevented nuclear war. It's actually been luck, right? And our current strategy is to rely on continued luck. But 
that's not a strategy at all, right? And I think basic sort of statistics tell us that as long as, you know, nuclear weapons exist, sooner or later, eventually, right, whether it's by accident or on purpose or by madness, they will be used, right? There's no way around that, you know, depending how, we don't know how long that would take, but if if we are around and nuclear weapons are around for long enough, it will happen, right? So some of the facts are, as of 2021, there were over 13,000 nuclear warheads in the world. 13,080, I think, to be exact. And they are officially held by nine countries. So in the order of the size of their nuclear arsenal, that's Russia with the most, and then the U.S. a little bit behind Russia. And the two of them, Russia and the U.S., possess around 90% of all the world's nuclear weapons. And then all the way down, the other seven countries are China, France, UK, Pakistan, India, Israel, and North Korea. There are also some countries not on that list that host nuclear weapons on their soil. So like Turkey, for example, Germany, Netherlands. So that's sort of, yeah, that's, those are the facts. And one thing I think that's so important for us to know is that the the medical or the humanitarian consequences of a nuclear exchange today, or even of a single nuclear detonation, are, I don't think it's an under or an overstatement to say that they're quite literally incomprehensible because we don't have a reference point to look to, to what it might actually be like, you know, I think everybody knows that the two times that nuclear weapons have been used in war, right, are on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the images of those attacks are utterly shocking and they're utterly unacceptable. And yet they don't even begin to prepare us for what the destruction might be in the event of a nuclear attack today which is so scary. For example, you know, if you've been hearing the news or reading the news, consuming the news lately, you might have heard talk about tactical nuclear weapons, which are talked about as more precise, lower yield, smaller nuclear weapons that aren't as destructive. But the reality is that the the smaller end of tactical, quote unquote, tactical nuclear weapons, each is about the size of the Hiroshima bomb, the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima which was 15 kilotons. I mean, you don't have to know what that is, just that that's sort of the, you know, the, I don't know, the unit of measurement. Mm -hmm. So, okay, 15 kilotons. The larger weapons that are still considered, quote unquote, tactical nuclear weapons are 50 kilotons each. You know, and that's just one bomb. And so, and those are just, yeah, not even like the properly (laughs) bigger, bigger weapons that exist. And so, yeah, I think, and, you know, I mean, I could talk on and on, but another, another actually key facts, especially if you are living in the U.S., although this affects everyone, is I think the, the money that goes into it. This was another thing that shocked me. But in 2021, for example, the U.S. alone spent $44.2 billion, I think it was, dollars on nuclear weapons when, you know, that was the first full year of a raging global pandemic, right? And even without the pandemic, how many people in in our country and around the world are suffering, not being able to meet their basic human rights, basic human needs, while these billions of dollars are being spent on these weapons. And so I think the movement to abolish nuclear weapons is so, so crucial because it's people right? Who created these weapons. They didn't come from anywhere else. And so naturally, it's only going to be people who bring about their elimination. And I I would like to think who then also bring about a world in which nuclear weapons have no place, right? Because yes, the abolition of nuclear weapons is such an important goal to me, right? Mm-hmm. But if we were to snap our fingers today and magically get rid of all the nuclear weapons that exist in the world, well, 
the ways of thinking that justify having them, those would still exist. You know, that this global structure in which we, you know, currently operate, that would still exist. The knowledge of how to build them would still exist. And so I think, yeah, it's on the one hand, a fight to get rid of the weapons. Yes, of course. But it's also on a deeper level, a fight to create, or maybe I shouldn't use the word fight, I don't know, but really that's what it feels like. You know, this, this effort to create a world where nuclear weapons have no place. You know, and yeah, I think, well, anyway, I can, <laughs> I can stop there. I, I could talk for no, so yeah, long, but I think. I, it's a, yeah. I, I have a follow-up to that actually, but, but first, thank you for, for sharing that, that context. And I, I agree. I remember going to a talk once that, that sort of outlined the like geographic and health and climate consequences of pretty small nukes. And I was like, horrified i it was the first time i had realized like the again this scope of destruction and i think what you just touched on in terms of just like human life so i mean this is one of the reasons why in buddhism and particular our particularly our buddhist community the abolition of nuclear weapons and the thinking that perpetuates like allowing them to exist is so important because it's just complete destruction of life versus dignity of life. And Buddhism is about the dignity of life. But I, I, I do want to ask two questions, I guess. So first of all, it can be extremely overwhelming once you just understand this. And also just to think like these are these are governments that have been, you know, developing and protecting these weapons for decades and decades and decades now, right? So like the fact that people feel that they can make a difference through activism on an issue like this you know, I, I, I'm like incredibly inspired and also sort of like, I, I don't even personally know if like I could choose that as the issue that I would work on because it feels so completely impossible. So I, I want to address that, like the agency question that you, you know, just for you personally, that you, you mentioned earlier, just like finding a place for yourself in this fight. What, what does that actually look like? And what, what has that journey sort of been for you from like how you reacted emotionally when you were just understanding the issues to then deciding like, okay, so this is where I'm going to start, you know, like what, what is the activism that's currently happening and, and how are you, how did you choose to participate in it? I guess. Yes. Oh my gosh. I understand completely. And I feel that sense of overwhelm. If that's even a word, is it a noun? Yes, overwhelm. <laughs> I feel it all the time. Of course I do, because this is, you know, I think our, I mean, I am no neuroscientist, but I feel like I remember learning in school at some point that, you know, as sort of a self-preservation mechanism, our brains delete a lot of information, including information that feels too, too scary and overwhelming, you know, which... The reality of nuclear weapons is, I think, if we don't then also have a solution, mm -hmm. which for me is it's entirely born from my Buddhist practice. But I will say, so the first thing, though, I think is for me personally, the reason that I'm so drawn to this, this topic and feel so strongly about, about it is you know, I, I really believe that every person has an inviolable viable right to live, but also every person has a right, you know, not just to survive, but to experience joy and to experience fulfillment, to have the opportunity to discover and develop their own unique capabilities and to contribute to the world, you know, in, in the way that's most true to themselves. I guess in short, you know, the right to live a truly happy life in the deepest sense of the word. And I think that, so for me, that coming back to that is why I, you know, want to fight for the abolition of nuclear weapons. I think that reason, though, is directly born from my Buddhist practice and also from the SGI. Right, especially personally from the lifelong peace building efforts of Daisaku Keda and also the, the history that our organization has. It, it exists in order 
it really exists for the happiness of every person, right? That's that's at the end of the day why why this organization exists and, and why we practice. And so, yes, it is so overwhelming to grapple with with this reality. But for me, my Buddhist practice has always been a source of limitless hope. I think before anything, that's what it is. And like we talked about earlier, the only reason I feel that way is because time and time again, moments when I was feeling hopeless, and usually it wasn't because of some big global issue. Usually it was like, I made a mistake in my life and I feel like a failure or Mm -hmm. I'm never going to get this done. You know, just like little things in in my little world. Whenever I felt hopeless, it's always been through chanting and taking action, chanting and taking action, hmm. that I've found the hope, you know, to break through, break through that. And now, I mean, I, I feel many things <laughs> on a daily basis, but I never, you know, even if I have a moment of feeling just total despair or totally hopeless, I never remain stuck there ever because I have this practice, you know? And so I think practically, though, it's, I really learned from my Buddhist practice how to redetermine every day, even many times a day, you know, redetermine, remind myself, why am I doing this, you know, and remind myself of the fact that, yeah, I can, right? And I think also the the fact that, you know, one of my favorite Buddhist concepts is the oneness of self and environment. So a little bit like I I touched on earlier, but from the Buddhist perspective, all life and indeed the entire universe is all so connected that at the end of the day, there is no, you know, there's no happiness, right? That's just for another person Mm -hmm. or, or just for myself. And there's also no suffering that is just from an, for another person or just for myself, not, not connected. And so that means when we undergo some kind of change, some kind of transformation within ourselves, within our lives, our environment transforms in response, right? The people in our environment transform in response. And that means that at any level of your life, whether it's like the tiniest little thing or you know, something like trying to face the threat of nuclear weapons. The change, like you have in your life, the power to transform that, as does every other person. Mm. But yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I totally hear you. So I guess, you know, just to, well, first, thank you also for sharing that context of the, like, chant and take action because that's central to literally any kind of challenge in Buddhism like that is the formula for solving global issues as well as your personal issues as well as all goals and human relationships in your life you know everything is approached (laughs) the same way and it really is just like a one step at a time you know you're simultaneously like building your courage and chanting to bring out your bootability which is your own courage and your wisdom and your compassion and then you take action so I feel like there's just for anyone who's listening who might have another issue that they're working on or might just have a a a great obstacle right now that they're dealing with like I find I find that formula to sort of tap into your agency very practical so thank you for sharing that but I wanted to ask specifically on this issue so just to recap I feel like I understand sort of how you came to this and what you learned, you know, and why you decided to sort of make this your path. But practically speaking, what does it look like to to work on this issue? Like what kind of work have you done or do you currently do? And then for you yourself, were there any pivotal sort of turning points in in committing to this work or kind of finding your own your own way? Yes, I love these questions. And I think I'll flip the order of them because that's that's okay. That's the order that it sort of happened in my life. But there was, yes, a, a turning point that I can point to. And then it's led to all this incredible opportunity. But the just before the pandemic, I suffered a very sudden and unexpected brain injury. 
And it, at the time I was teaching, I was teaching elementary school, which I loved so much, but at the same time, I had never aspired to be a teacher, really. I was more there because in my field at the time, I just felt that I needed some practical experience, but it wasn't my, you know, sort of goal. And so anyway, I was, I was teaching at the time and the brain injury turned out to be quite serious. I had subdural bleeding. So bleeding. But I, well, anyway, lots of things happened at the time. And over the next year and a bit, more than a year, I suffered so, so much because the pandemic hit a couple of months later. And despite the fact that I definitely shouldn't have been working, I actually continued to to work despite just extreme pain and all kinds of symptoms. And there were sort of two main sources, I guess, or causes of suffering during that time for me, which were number one, feeling like the cause of disharmony in my family. <laughs> that was like the biggest one because I was in constant pain, plus the mental and emotional sort of turbulence of a brain injury. The frustration that comes with that, all of that paired with the fact that we were all home, all trying to work from home on top of one another during this pandemic. And then the second thing that really was causing me to suffer during that time was my total inability to listen to my body, to take care of it. And specifically, my inability to seek medical help. You know, I probably should have gotten a neurologist right away but I didn't end up getting one until 10 months later and then you know I I was still working when of course you shouldn't be working with a brain injury that that serious but the reality is that that both of these things were just exacerbated versions of things that I had suffered from my entire life I struggled my entire life to you know seek the medical help that I need to even understand that it's okay to do that and I should do that. And also, you know, I had suffered for a long time from feeling, yeah, kind of like at disease with myself and then feeling like the cause of sort of disharmony around me. And so the reality ended up being that, you know, I could probably record a whole episode on this, but over the course of, you know, the last two and a bit years now, this injury, forced me to face these things and to be able to transform them for the first time. You know, these things that I had like plotted on with and suffered from for so many years. And I think really related to that, the reason I'm sharing all this is that eventually then when I became sort of able to to think about working again, I wasn't able to work full time, but I was cleared to sort of start working part-time on something, you know? And um, during during this period of like of healing and of actually seeking help and of, of, I chanted so much, you know, for the courage to do that, for the wisdom to know what to say, you know, to communicate what I was experiencing correctly. And, you know, the the courage to sort of, and the compassion as well, to sort of accept how I was and to be able to heal from there was a huge part of, of me learning to be able to like trust myself and to trust whether it was my body or whether it was my, my thoughts, you know, my opinions, trust that exactly where I was, was okay, you know? And I grew to be able to trust myself. And out of that, sort of naturally, actually, I really rediscovered that, you know, in my heart, what was it that I really wanted to do, right? As I faced the possibility of of being able to work again soon, I spent a lot of it sort of looking for jobs in, in fields that I wasn't interested in, in, you know, work that I wasn't interested in, but I felt like, you know, I was supposed to kind of thing. And over time, yeah, as I learned to trust myself more, I also started to reflect on what it was that I really wanted to do. What was it that I really wanted to contribute my time and my energy to, you know? And there was one day, actually, I actually wrote down a goal that I was going to work 
in a job that contributes to the abolition of nuclear weapons. And at the time, it was kind of incredible that I wrote that down because I still didn't know what that looked like, not only for me, but for other people. I didn't know what was out there. I didn't have any, you know, it wasn't like I had a lead in that area. And I was like, this is going to be my goal. I just sort of wrote it down. It came out of my, my heart. And eventually, yeah, I, you know, continued chanting and taking action, chanting and taking action. And I, yeah, I signed up for a, there was a virtual career fair for my, my graduate school. And it was full of, you know, companies and things that I wasn't really interested in. But there was one that was about this topic. And in fact, it was the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation, which was the foundation that was started by, by David Krieger, who, you know, was the sort of interlocutor with Daisaku Kira in that, in that dialogue that I read so many years ago. And so I showed up and that, that connection that I formed with that person at the time, you know, turned into an opportunity to volunteer. And then I sort of, you know, started to, within my own capacity at the time, be able to be active in that field and explore more what was out there. And, you know, even before I was fully able to, to work full time, I was able to, to meet people and to do a couple of, you know, I did some, some part-time jobs that were short-term and it sort of, you know, grew, grew from there. But the reason that, you know, the, the brain injury was in many ways the, the pivotal point for me was because it, it not only did it allow me to stop and pause my life for a while and reflect on what it was that I really wanted, but it was the catalyst for me to be able to transform many tendencies that I had suffered from for a really long time that then, you know, through that experience of really transforming them, I gained confidence in myself, right? I gained a sense of this is who I really am, you know, this is what I want to do. And, you know, these these tendencies as well that I had had of sort of looking to other people or other things for, you know, the answers or for my path, all of that sort of melted away. And it was an incredibly and is an incredibly liberating way to live. So in terms of the practical things, I've done so much now because I, yeah, it just, I had so many different opportunities to try different things in this field, but there is so much work I've done. One really exciting thing was working on legislation in my state. So my state is Massachusetts. And there was a bill in the state house, actually it still is a bill in the state house that was related to nuclear weapons. In, in our case, it was one that would create a citizens commission to look into nuclear weapons. So I got to learn what it was like to lobby and, and work on a bill and, you know, meet with senators, meet with representatives, meet with constituents, try to essentially, you know, get people to, to understand what was going on and why it was so important. Another big area of work is sort of public education. And so that involves a lot of, it can involve giving talks. It can involve a lot of social media work. It can involve sort of more on the back end, coordinating between the many, many peace groups and organizations that are out there working on nuclear abolition from their own, you know, different angles. I have gotten to work with media, for example, you know, to, it's not, it's not an easy thing to influence. And it's, it's certainly not something that you will see bear immediate fruit, but that's another big part of the work. Also, there's something called the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which is the first international treaty to outlaw nuclear weapons, essentially. So under it, not only nuclear weapons, but pretty much everything related to them. So, you know, the production of nuclear weapons, the stockpiling of nuclear weapons, it is all illegal. And this was a treaty that, that passed in the UN General Assembly back in 2017. And then it went into force in January of last year, 2021. And currently there are, I believe, 91 states that have signed and then something like 68, I think, that have ratified it. So these are countries that have, yeah, basically decided that for their country, this law applies. 
Now, at the moment, none of the nuclear weapons states have signed or ratified the treaty, of course, which is what we expect. But a big part of the activism that is happening now is to really support the treaty and to support more countries in getting on board, mm-hmm. signing and ratifying the treaty, because it's, I would say, I think it's the most powerful tool that we have right now, you know, and like the most powerful sort of concrete tool that we have to work toward abolition. And so, you know, yes, people do that on the, the country level, but you can also do that on the smaller levels. You can urge, you know, on your city level or on your state level or Canton, depending, you know, whatever country you live in or, yeah, or the federal level. You can urge your legislators to support. There are various types of legislation, right, that, that support this treaty. And so even if, for example, in our context, even if the U.S. as a country hasn't signed on, there are so many towns cities and states even that have passed legislation that supports this this treaty and you know what it what it means essentially and so yeah there's so many different types of work out there yeah that's super helpful helpful to hear and also that your your own journey with it I feel like is so encouraging that you know like I it sounds like such a serious and heavy thing that you went through but you share it so like joyfully and thoughtfully about how it opened up this opportunity for you to think about what you really want to do. And I think so many people, I mean, hopefully don't have to go through something that serious to be able to take the time to address, you know, how they're spending their time that deeply. But yeah, so thank you for sharing. It's very encouraging. Yeah, no, absolutely. So at the moment, I am working with an organization that Um, approaches the problem of nuclear weapons from the standpoint of public health as like a public health issue. And originally it is an organization that was founded actually by two two cardiologists, an American cardiologist and at the time Soviet. And it was, you know, through their relationship and really through the power of their friendship that they were able to create an organization (laughs) across like the widest aisle that really fought for for human life essentially right because as medical professionals they realized that in the event of a nuclear attack or a nuclear exchange their reality is that there was nothing and there still is nothing that modern medicine can offer in terms of an appropriate humanitarian response there just is not anything that that we would be able to do. And so the only cure in that case is prevention. And so they took it, you know, as their responsibility as doctors to also work for the abolition of nuclear weapons. And I think it is, that's a great example of the fact that, you know, whoever's listening, no matter what your area of specialty is or your profession is or your skills there is I think no such thing as this is what it looks like to be a nuclear disarmament activist or to work for you know nuclear disarmament we actually need in this and in every other global challenge it really is true that every person contributes their unique skills Mm. and we really really need that you know and so I would love to amplify that, that fact and the, and the fact that especially with the climate crisis, mm. um, it's so deeply intertwined in the, the climate crisis. But yes, I think the main, the main thing is that whoever you are, wherever you are, you, you really do have a crucial role to play in the abolition of nuclear weapons. Yeah. And in the, in the creation of a, of a world free of nuclear weapons. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I I hear you and I it it does strike me like hearing you say this that we do so many things. We invest so much money in so many fields to protect or preserve human life, medicine being one of the top, but 
but so many fields, right? And to think that this is like the, I mean, the sobering reality of like, this could, you know, overcome or, or supersede like anything we do on any other level to such a great degree. It is striking me that it behooves us to at least understand the issues and to bring this into public consciousness in a much, much bigger way than we currently are, and then take the appropriate action depending on your interest or your field. So thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, Yeah. So you already touched on one Buddhist concept earlier, but I'm curious if you do have any other favorite Buddhist readings or quotes or anything that you've held on to, whether directly related to this issue or or just related to this kind of question of tapping into your own agency to take action that you'd want to share. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So many, of course, so many. But I think specifically related to this this topic, yeah, from, I guess this is a, a quote, but from Daisaku Keda, there was, you know, he has written for over 40 years now, every single year, a really extensive peace proposal to the UN, many of which center around or, you know, really focus on, on nuclear disarmament. But he also wrote, I think it was in 2009, a special sort of nuclear disarmament proposal. I can't remember the exact title, but in that, you know, it, it, it starts with the line, if nuclear weapons epitomize the forces that would divide and destroy the world, they can only be overcome by the solidarity of ordinary citizens, which transforms hope into the energy to create a new era. And then it goes on to say, it is the function of evil to divide, to alienate people from each other and divide one country from another. The universe, this world, and our own lives are the stage for a ceaseless struggle between hatred and compassion, the destructive and constructive aspects of life. In the end, the evil over which we must triumph is the impulse toward hatred and destruction that resides in us all, which I think is so incredible because it encapsulates the fact that, you know, this starts within myself, you know, nuclear weapons are maybe sort of like the greatest manifestation of an impulse that exists in every one of us, right? It's such a refreshing perspective on our on our personal Buddhist practice. So I will move to our final question, but this has all been so amazing and encouraging. So thank you for sharing, Emma. But I always like to close with a piece of advice. So for anyone who is listening, who wants to actualize their own agency in contributing to one of the world's pressing issues, what advice would you give them? And if if specifically about nuclear abolition, then that's also great. Wow. Well, firstly, congratulations so much on having that desire at all. That is incredible, I think. And uh, personally, I always start with chanting. I really (laughs) always do because, you know, I I hope that maybe through, you know, this hour or so that I've been talking, maybe it sounds like I'm always, you know, full of hope and always ready to go. And that is so not true, right? So often I'm like, oh my gosh, I cannot do this this is hopeless. And anytime I feel that way, I chant and I read always, always, always. I break through, you know? So that's my, yeah, I I think that's my advice. You know, I have total, total conviction. If I have conviction in nothing else, I have conviction in the fact that when you chant, nam myoho ningekyo, and you take action based on that, there's nothing, nothing in this world that you can't break through, you know? And so, yeah, I think, you know, you can bring out the best version of yourself and bring out that Buddhist state, you know, that exists within every one of us. And that growth is limitless. You know, your potential and my potential is limitless. So I think one thing that I always remember also from Daisaku Keda is because I get very fearful sometimes of taking that first step. That's sort of where I always falter or hesitate. And he says, the important thing is to take that first step, bravely overcoming one small fear 
gives you the courage to take on the next. Hmm. So yeah, take that first step, whatever it is, and, and the path will open up. Amazing. Yeah. And is there anything in terms of nuclear abolition specifically, if anyone's like, okay, whoa, this is not on my radar in a big enough way, where where would I start? What if I do want to learn more or or do more? Yes, there's so much. And you're right. Learning, I think, learning more is the place to start, right? Whatever in whatever way feels right to you. You know, I think that's the important thing is there's no this is the only right way. But there are so many resources online like well, just so many, especially on social media. You know, there's so many accounts and you can just search a hashtag and find a lot. You might see my face on there somewhere. But there is, for example, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons is a great resource. Similarly, so the, the organization I mentioned earlier is called International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. Another one that, you know, if that's what speaks to you, that's a great place to go. Also, you can find local peace groups. That's actually kind of how I started. My local peace group that I didn't even know existed had a nuclear disarmament working group and I worked up the courage to ask if I could join and they were super happy. If you like to write, you can write op-eds and submit them to news outlets or you can self-publish somewhere on your own platforms. Or if you see something in the news, for example, if you've you know done a little more learning and you see nuclear weapons covered in the news in a way that doesn't feel right to you or you have some kind of reaction to, you can write a letter to the editor, mm -hmm. which is really short, really sweet, but these things make a really big difference, right? And then, like I mentioned before, you can reach out to your local elected officials. You know, one of the most impactful things that we can do is exercise our rights as constituents and reach out to our elected officials. So beyond just voting, you know, we forget sometimes, I think, that they are there to represent us, you know, as people. And so you can let them know that you want them, you know, to support nuclear abolition on, on your behalf. And you can do research on, you know, depending where you are in the world, there are things that they can sign. There is even legislation that you can, you know, ask them to pass. There's divestment. You can check if your university or if your bank funds nuclear weapons. And so... There's so much you can do, but I think, yeah, having the desire to and the interest and just learning more is the first step. I want to close by sharing some words from Daisaku Ikeda's message to a civil society peace forum a few years ago. In it, he explains what our Buddhist practice can help us unlock in the face of a challenge as big as this one. He writes, Today, many people have given up on the possibility of nuclear abolition. But peace is always a competition between resignation and hope. Indifference and acquiescence in the face of evil must be recognized as negative, destructive functions of life. To submit to such impulses is ultimately to side with the forces of destruction. It was human beings who gave rise to nuclear weapons. It cannot, therefore, be beyond the power of human wisdom to eliminate them. Buddhism asserts that human life holds within it sources of wisdom and compassion powerful enough to rise above any temptation or threat. I believe that humankind's continued survival hinges on the success of our efforts to bring forth these positive, creative capacities in all people and forge from them a new solidarity. This is a challenge of epic significance in human history. The greatest single force to achieve this on a global scale is the power of dialogue. Dialogue among individual human beings and through expanding friendship and exchange among the world's peoples. Dialogue starts from the courageous willingness to know and be known by others. It is the painstaking and persistent effort to remove all obstacles that obscure our common humanity. On that note, if you want to learn more about Buddhism or this issue, we'll link the references in the show notes. 
And of course, as always, if you're new to chanting and have questions or want to get connected to your local Buddhist community, you can email us at connect at sgi-usa.org. That's all for today, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.